This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. It is a free, full, perfect, glorious, and eternal salvation. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Christmas Evans in Wales, sometime between 1786 and 1838. Joel, this sermon, uh, maybe more than others, immediately got my attention. In fact, everything about Christmas Evans gets your attention. And we always say, imagine going back in time. If you're new to the show, that's something you're going to hear a lot, where we try to put you back in that place. But... This might be the one where I'm like, you really have to imagine this. This is this is different. You show up at church, and you're in the late 1700s or early 1800s, and you the guy at the pulpit is just going to look kind of different than your average preacher. Um, for starters, he's missing an eye. And the second thing is, he's about seven feet tall. And this is in Wales back in 1800. Um, and I looked it up actually. In England in 1800, the average person was about five foot six. So this guy was a huge, I mean, he would have just been like a giant, even by our standards, that's huge. And he's preaching is so different than anything we've ever looked at before. He just paints these beautiful, imaginative pictures. It's like, it's like hearing a story. I don't know how to describe it. Troy Christmas Evans was born on, you guessed it, December 25th, 1766. So his parents named him after the day he was born on. He was born on Christmas Day. He grew up there in Wales, and his father died when he was very young, and his mother couldn't really take care of him that well because they were so poor. So she handed him off to her brother, so his uncle, uh, just for food, for basic necessities of life. And unfortunately, the uncle was uh, not a great person, a, a pretty terrible person. He was a drunk. He was very foul. He would often beat him regularly. So Christmas Evans has this very colorful childhood, this upbringing, and he has all these accounts and stories of these near-death experiences. And some of them were, were forced upon him based on his situation. He got robbed a lot. He got mugged. There was a, an instance where he was stabbed and nearly bled out to death. Um, he nearly drowned at one point. There's a, there's other stories that he talks about where it just sounds like he's being a kid and, and like there's this instance where he was climbing a tree and he had a, a knife on his like in his pocket and he fell out of the tree and nearly stabbed himself to death by falling on the knife. I could see myself. That's something I could see myself doing as a kid. But there's like another instance where he runs into a wall at full speed on the back of a horse. And again, I don't know why. I don't know what the context or the history around why he's going full speed into a wall on the back of a horse, but stuff like that where he had he had a lot going on growing up. And throughout this all, he never got any formal education whatsoever. By the time he's an adult, he's completely illiterate. He can't read at all, um, and he's never received any formal education. Yeah, Joel, we have highlighted a lot of rough people on this show, but honestly, his life was definitely up there on the list of just not a good background. He seemed destined to just be no one, honestly. He was poverty-stricken. He's living as someone from Wales in the 1700s, which during that time, England was oppressing Wales pretty 
it was not a great time to be from that part of the world. Um, he had no family that cared for him. His mom, nobody's really there watching after him. His uncle is beating him. He's around really shady characters. His friends, they're not good people. He has no education. This is him at 17. And this would have probably been the road he continued down. But in a nearby town, there was this Presbyterian church and they were doing revivals and they had kind of a little mini revival breakout. And he heard about it, going, heard what was going on. He goes and visits. There's this reverend named David Davies there. And he, uh, he has a very odd view of Christ, honestly. And he considered himself this poet. It's not the guy you would think who would save kind of these blue-collar farmer types. But Christmas Evans, ever since he was little, when he was with his mom before he got you know sent away, he was always afraid of dying without Christ. He was terrified of hell. And he, he felt at that point at 17, he was just covered in sin from head to toe. And so when he heard the gospel being preached by David Davies, he knew he wanted to change his life and he accepted it just on the spot. So Christmas Evans is this new believer, and he makes these new friends, these other friends that are believers as well, and with what little money he has, he goes out and he buys a copy of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you, here's, you know, another side note, if you haven't heard our episode on John Bunyan, you should go and listen to that one too. He has a great sermon that we did an episode on as well. But John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was really influential in his life, and again, he couldn't read but between him and his new believer friends, they would meet in a barn after work and read by candlelight. And within a couple months, they had gone through all of Pilgrim's Progress, and they had a, a copy of the Bible they were able to get a hold of too. And they had gone through all of Pilgrim's Progress and all of the Bible, and through all of this, John Bunyan was learning to read. And that, that's how he learned to read, was going through the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. And in an earlier Revive Thoughts episode, we were talking about Christopher Love. We had an episode on Christopher Love where we talked about how his father was so angry at him and wanted to stop him from going to church so much that he literally locked him in an attic to keep him from going to church when he became a believer. Sometimes our family and friends don't like it when we come to know Christ, and that's kind of a similar situation here with Christmas Evans. The town noticed that his conversion. The town noticed him becoming a believer, and a lot of his old friends from his past didn't like that at all. And so there's these people from his past. He, he's going home from church one day and six of his old friends jump him and they, they, they rob him and they beat him. And they beat him so badly that he ends up losing sight in one of his eyes. That night he got home and he has this absolutely horrible dream. And, and I will say, I wanted to mention, I mean, he did get hit pretty hard in the head that night, lost an eye. Clearly, you know, he, his head wasn't doing great. Um, that might have affected this dream. But he saw, he, he was just standing around, and the world was on fire. And he thought he saw Jesus looking down, like kind of on the sky. And Jesus looks at him and said, you thought to be a preacher. Well, what will you do now? And then he woke up. And he thanked God that the world had not been ended, that it wasn't on fire. And he thanked God for what he had seen, because what he thought he had seen was God's judgment that had not happened yet. There was still time. And this vision of the future confirmed in him just this idea that he needed to become a preacher who preached the gospel. And I think it really encouraged him to get back to work, even though he had just had this horrible incident where his friends had jumped him and, you know, beat him up for being a Christian. He ends up going off kind of to a little school. He becomes an amazing student. Within six months, he went from not knowing how to read anything to being able to read Welsh, 
English and passing Latin grammar exams, which, I mean, that's incredible how much of a flip the switch happened here. And I really think God can be the only answer for it. Now, the church that Christmas Evans was originally saved in, uh, he will end up leaving. And he talks about how he, he felt like the people there weren't very serious about God. And it ended up being the right choice because that church would eventually go on to become a Unitarian church. And I, I think that's interesting. I do think the Lord gives us kind of wisdom in that area. I feel like the Holy Spirit does give us kind of guidance in a sound interpretation of scripture. Chris, Christmas Evans was sitting there looking around him and going, these people around me, I mean, what they're talking about, what they're believing is not lining up with what I'm seeing here in scriptures. And so he, he leaves that church and he goes off to start ministry on his own. It took Christmas Evans a, a long time to really gain that confidence as a, as a speaker, a lot of the times on this show, it kind of comes off like these preachers are overnight sensations, and sometimes they are, but Christmas Evans was definitely not one of those people. It took him a long time to get comfortable preaching. His first sermon went about as poorly as one could possibly go. He talks about how he was so nervous preaching in this church that he ended up taking a sermon from a book that he really liked and and delivering that sermon what he didn't count on was that there was a farmer in the congregation that recognized the sermon and called him out on it and said hey i know where you got that from obviously pretty embarrassing for christmas heavens but uh at the end of that sermon he i love the story so much it makes me laugh so much at the end of the sermon he closed the sermon with a prayer and the farmer wanted to encourage him after calling him out so much so the farmer said hey that prayer was just as good as the sermon what the farmer didn't realize was that the prayer was also taken from a different book that the farmer was unfamiliar with. So he was he was just taking work from wherever he could to get through that through that morning through that service. So it took him a while to get his own style of preaching that that was really his and not something that he was taking from the people around him. And the people around him would would see this growth in him, this transformation where he became stronger and stronger as a believer and. Uh, later looking back on that era of his life, Christmas Evans says it really wasn't like that. Like, I, I know people kind of saw me as, as a rising pastor, but um, he talks about how it, it took him a while to really gain that security of salvation. That was something that he struggled with. But there was a kind of, again, this kind of changing point in his life where he was at a point, God got a hold of him. There was this moment where he was offered a position at a rural church out in Wales. And he saw that as God affirming, hey, this is what I've called you to. I want to use you. You are mine. Uh, and that, that security of salvation was there. And so from that moment on, he took off in ministry at this new church out in rural Wales. So he's out there at this church. He is working very hard, but he gets sick. Um, he gets very sick. He And it makes sense. This guy was preaching five times every Sunday. He was walking about a round trip of 20 miles to a bunch of different churches, uh, going from one to the other. And they said he had such passion and zeal, but it seemed like his body was getting worn out. And the, when he wasn't riding the high, it was a pretty low low. And uh, friends of his were actually worried that he was going to, it was looking like he was going to die of tuberculosis, in fact. Um, and he eventually moved. Him and his wife kind of went to an island. Um, I think that the air and weather was a little better, helped him recover. And uh, there he received about 17 pounds a year. Uh, for. And he was there for 20 years, never asked for anything more. And when they asked him, like, you don't want to raise, you know, you're doing this for 20 years, you keep the same wage. And he just was like, hey, with a roof, food, and clothes, I'm pretty content on all things. Um, we'll go into one little last detail about him and his life that's important. 
And there's actually a whole lot here that we had to cut from the show. Christmas Evans was just fascinating. It was just so many things, but we had to kind of cut it down to what we thought were the essentials here. And um, there's this moment in his life where he gets kind of caught up in what I can only describe as wrong thinking, a bad theology for a couple years. Okay, Sandemanianism which I'm not going to say again, and it took several times, listener, that you didn't hear to get that word down. You won't hear it again, but that long word was this theology that he got swept in that really affected him, and we want to share more about that. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. So this theology, uh, I'm going to try pronouncing it. I'm going to butcher it, but Sandemanianism. Oof, that is not right. That sounded pretty close, though. Thank you. This theology was kind of introduced to Wales around this time, and... Evans later described it to himself as suddenly caring way more about the minor things than the major things. And so this this kind of believing and false theology kind of swept away his love for the lost. He said that he felt cold and it was hard to pray and he felt like his heart was pretty hardened during that time. This way of thinking, this theology, approached the relationship with God as being much more like mind fact orientated and less about your spiritual walk with God, less about saving souls. And this changed his zeal for preaching and for the Holy Spirit revivals that he had been into and they had been known for. One day while Christmas Evans is traveling through uh, some mountains, he just felt like God was telling him, you need to pray right now. And, uh, you know, he had, again, his heart had been pretty hard. He literally described it as frost and he, but he gets on his knees And he just said he felt overwhelmed by the love of God. And he just repented of this hardness of heart he'd been carrying around the past couple years. He was just there on the mountain praying. And he just said he was praying all these people's names around him and just yearning for that Holy Spirit to just get a hold of them like it was getting a hold of him. And he said he just suddenly was like, I'm surrendering all of me to you, God. Just I want to go back, basically. And he, he, when, he, when he got done, it had been three hours on the mountain that he was praying, but he didn't feel like it had been that much time. He gets home, and he gets there, and there's two deacons come, and they run up to him, and they go, we had this experience um, in prayer. We can't explain it. And he goes, I had the same one. And they praise, and they thank God, and they just go back out. They start doing the revivals again. They become these fiery preachers just like they were before, maybe even uh, more so. This man, Christmas Evans, to remind you at the beginning, was born nobody. He had no education. He got saved in this crazy, unique way. He became one of the most powerful preachers Wales would ever produce. He speaks in this imaginative style. It's just very artistic when you listen to it. And you have to remember, he didn't know how to read. He had no education. This just wasn't the life that the world would have chosen. There was no reason for him to do it. But when Christ got a hold of him, look at the change that happened. 
is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory and mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Isaiah 63 This passage is one of the most awe-inspiring in the Bible. The voice of God that issued from the burning bush is here speaking to us at some of his most beautiful and majestic. This passage represents the captain of our salvation who was left alone in the heat of battle, marching victoriously through the broken ranks of the enemy. He bursts the bars apart, breaks open the metal gates, and delivers by conquest the captives of sin and death. Let us first determine the events to which our text relates, and then briefly explain the questions and answers which come from it. First, we have a wonderful victory obtained by Christ in the city of Basra in the land of Edom, our first question concerns the time and the place of that achievement. Some of the prophecies are literal and others are figurative. Some of them are already fulfilled and others are in the daily process of fulfillment. Respecting this prophecy, theologians disagree. Some think it is a description of Christ's conflict and victory, without the gates of Jerusalem 18 centuries ago. And others understand it as referring to the great battle of Armageddon predicted in the apocalypse and yet to be finished at the end of the world. I am not willing to pass by Mount Calvary and Joseph's new tomb on my way to the field of Armageddon, nor am I willing to pause at the scene of the crucifixion and the ascension without going farther on to the final conquest of the foe. I believe divine inspiration has included both events in the text, the victory already won on Calvary and the victory yet to be accomplished in Armageddon. We have in one passage the finished victory of Messiah's passion and the progressive victory of his gospel and his grace. The chief difficulty in understanding some parts of the word of God arises from untranslated words many of which are found in our own version as well as that of our English neighbors. For instance, in Matthew 2.23, it is said, He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, He will be called a Nazarene. Where in the prophets is it predicted that Christ will be called a Nazarene? Nowhere. When the proper names are translated, the difficulty vanishes. He came and dwelt in his city called Plantation, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, he will be called the branch. 
The name is given to him by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. Now, this is precisely the difficulty that occurs in our text and the translation of the terms unties the knot. Who is this that comes from Edom? Edom, translated red earth, with dyed garments from Basra. Basra, properly translated as tribulation. The former part of the text has reference to the victory of Calvary. The latter part anticipates the battle and triumph of Armageddon, mentioned in Revelation 16.16. The victory of Calvary is finished on the morning of the third day after the crucifixion. The conqueror comes up from the earth, exclaiming, I have trodden the winepress alone on Calvary, and I will tread them in my anger and make them drunk in my fury at the battle of Armageddon. I will overtake and destroy the beast and the false prophet and that old serpent the devil with all their followers. When the tide of battle turned on the field of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington mounted on his horse and pursued the vanquished foe. So Isaiah's conqueror, having routed the powers of hell at Calvary, pursues and destroys them on the field of Armageddon. Here he is represented as a hero on foot, a prince without an army, but John, the writer of Revelation, saw him riding on a white horse and followed by the armies of heaven, all on white horses and not a footman among them. The victory of Calvary is like the blood of atonement in the sanctuary. The cherubim were some of them looking one way and some the other, but all were looking on the atoning blood. So all the great events of time, all the trials and triumphs of God's people, those which happened before, those which have happened since, and those which are yet to happen, are all looking toward the wrestling of Gethsemane, the conflict of Golgotha, and the triumph of Olivet. The escape from Egypt and the return from Babylon looked forward to the cross of Christ, and the faith of the perfect men of us hung on a risen Redeemer. The Christian martyrs overcame by the blood of the Lamb, and all their victories were in virtue of one great achievement. The tomb of Jesus is the birthplace of his people's immortality, and the power which raised him from the dead will open the caskets of all his saints. Your dead men will live. Together with my dead body they will arise, awake and sing you that dwells in the dust, for your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth will cast out her dead. Christ offered himself a sacrifice for us and drank the cup of God's righteous indignation in our stead. He was trodden by almighty justice as if a cluster of grapes crushed in the winepress of the law, till the vessels of mercy overflowed with the wine of peace and pardon, which has made thousands of peaceful and humble spirits rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He suffered for us that we might triumph with him. But our text describes him as a king and a conqueror. He was at once the dying victim and the immortal victor. In the power of an endless life, he was standing by the altar when the sacrifice was burning. He was alive in his ceremonial vestments with his golden censer in his hand. He was alive in his kingly glory with his sword and scepter in his hand. He was alive in his conquering prowess and had made an end of sin. He bruised the head of the serpent 
spoiled the principalities and powers of hell, and turned the vanquished followers of the Prince of Darkness down to the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. Then on the morning of the third day, when he arose from the dead and made a show of them openly, then began the year of jubilee with power. After the prophets of ancient times had long gazed through the mists of the future at the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, a company of them were gathered together at the summit of Calvary. They saw a host of enemies ascending the hill, arrayed for battle and most terrifying in their appearance. In the middle of the line was the law of God, fiery and working wrath. On the right wing was Beelzebub with his troops of infernal warriors, and on the left Caiaphas with his Jewish priests and Pilate with his Roman soldiers. The rear was brought up by death, the last enemy. When the holy seers saw this army and perceived that it was drawing near, they retreated and prepared for flight. As they looked round, they saw the Son of God advancing, having his face fixed on the hostile band. "'Do you see the danger that is before you?' said one of the men of God. "'I will tread them in my anger,' he replied, "'and trample them in my fury.' Well, "'Who are you?' said the prophet. He answered, "'I am he that speaks in righteousness and is mighty to save.' "'Will you go to the battle alone?' asked the seer. The Son of God replied, I looked and there was no one to help, and I was amazed there was none to support. Therefore my own arm will bring salvation for me, and my fury will uphold me. At what point will you begin your attack? inquired the anxious prophet. I will first meet the law, he replied, and pass under its curse, for lo, I have come to do your will, O God. When I have succeeded at the center of the line, the colors will turn in my favor." So he moved forward. Instantly the thunderings of Sinai were heard, and the whole band of prophets quaked with terror. But he advanced, undaunted, amidst the lightning. For a moment he was concealed from view, and the banner of wrath waved above in triumph. Suddenly the scene was changed. A stream of blood poured forth from his wounded side and put out the fires of Sinai. The flag of peace was now seen unfurled, and confusion filled the ranks of his foes. He then crushed with his bruised heel the old serpent's head and put the demonic powers to flight. With his iron rod he dashed to pieces the enemies on the left wing like a potter's vessel. Death still remained, who thought himself invincible, having triumphed over all. He came forward, brandishing his sting, which he had wetted on Sinai's tables of stone. He darted it at the conqueror, but it turned down and hung like the limp lash of a whip. Dismayed, he retreated to the grave, his palace, into which the conqueror pushed. In a dark corner of his den, he sat on his throne of skulls and called upon the worms, his faithful allies, to aid him in the conflict. But they replied, his flesh will never see corruption. The scepter fell from his hand. The conqueror seized him, bound him, and condemned him to the lake of fire, and then rose from the grave, followed by a band of released captives who came out after his resurrection to be 
the witnesses of the victory which he had won. John in the apocalypse did not look so far back as the treading of this winepress, but John saw him on his white horse, decked with his many crowns, his eyes like flames of fire, a two-edged sword in his hand, in the van of the armies of heaven, going out, conquering and to conquer. This is the fulfillment of his declaration in our text, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury. This is the beginning of the Jubilee, the battle of Armageddon, where all heathen idolatry and superstition will be overthrown, and the beast and the false prophet will be destroyed, and the devil amongst his legions will be taken prisoners by Emmanuel and shut up in the bottomless pit. He who has conquered principalities and powers on Calvary will not leave the field till he makes all his enemies his footstool and sways his scepter over a subject universe. Having sent out the gospel from Jerusalem, he accompanies it with the grace of his Holy Spirit, and it will not return to him void, but will accomplish that which he pleases and prospers in the places he has sent it. The victory of Armageddon is obtained by virtue of the victory of Calvary. It is but the completion of the same glorious campaign, and the first decisive blow dealt on the Prince of Darkness is a sure precursor of the final conquest. I will meet you again at Philippi, said the ghost of Julius Caesar to Brutus. I will meet you again at Armageddon, says the Son of God to Satan on Calvary. I will meet you in the engagement between good and evil, grace and depravity, in every believer's heart, in the contest of divine truth with human errors, of the religion of God with the superstitions of men, in every sermon, every revival, every missionary enterprise, in the spread and glory of the gospel in the latter days, I will meet you, and the heel which you have now bruised will crush your head forever. Man's deliverance is of God. Man had neither the inclination nor the power his salvation originated in the divine love and burst forth like an ocean from the fountains of eternity. Satan, as a ravenous lion, had taken the prey and was running to his den with a bleeding sheep in his mouth, but the shepherd of Israel pursues him, overtakes him, and treats him as if he were a kid. The declaration of war was made in Eden. I will put animosity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, and he will bruise your head. It will be fulfilled. The league with hell and the covenant of death will not stand. The rebellion will be quelled. The conspiracy will be broken, and the strong man armed will yield the citadel to a stronger. The works of the devil will be destroyed, and the prey will be taken from the teeth of the terrible. The house of David will grow stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul will grow weaker and weaker, till the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and Satan will be bound in chains of darkness and cast into the lake of fire. All of the enemies of Zion will be vanquished, 
and the forfeited favor of God will be recovered, and the lost territory of peace, holiness, and immortality will be restored to man. This campaign is carried on at the expense of the government of heaven. The treasury is inexhaustible. The arms are irresistible. Therefore, the victory is sure. The Almighty King has descended. He has taken the city of Basra. He has swayed his scepter over Edom. He has risen victoriously and gone up with a shout as the leader of all the army. This is but the pledge and the earnest of his future achievements. In the battle of Armageddon, he will go forth as a mighty man. He will stir up jealousy as a man of war, and he will prevail against his enemies. They will be turned away. They will be greatly ashamed, those that trust in graven images, that say to molten images, you are our gods. Then he will open the blind eyes and bring the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. He will make bare his holy arm. He will show the sword in that hand which was hidden under the scarlet robes. He will show his power in the destruction of his enemies and in the salvation of his people. As certainly as he has shed his blood on Calvary, so will he stain all his clothing with the blood of his foes on the field of Armageddon. As certainly as he has drained the cup of wrath and received the baptism of suffering on Calvary, will he wield the iron rod of justice and sway the golden scepter of mercy on the field of Armageddon. Already the sword is drawn, and the decisive blow is struck, and the helmet of Apollyon is cleft, and the bonds of iniquity are cut apart. Already the fire is kindled, and all the powers of hell cannot quench it. It has fallen from heaven. It is wrecking the camp of the foe. It is inflaming the hearts of men. It is renovating the earth and purging the curse. The bright and morning star has risen on Calvary, and soon the sun of righteousness will shine on the field of Armageddon. And the darkness that covers the earth and the gross darkness that covers the people will melt away. And Islam and paganism and popery with their prince, the devil, will seek shelter in the bottomless pit. After a battle, we are anxious to learn who is dead, who is wounded, and who is missing from the ranks. In the engagement of Messiah with Satan and his allies on Calvary, Messiah's heel was bruised, but Satan and his allies received a mortal wound in the head. The head denotes wisdom, cunning, power, government. The devil, sin, and death have lost their dominion over the believer in Christ since the achievement of Calvary. There is now no condemnation, no fear of hell. But the serpent, though his head is bruised, may be able to move his tail and alarm those of little faith. Yet it cannot last long. The wound is mortal, and the triumph is sure. On Calvary, the dragon's head was crushed by the captain of our salvation. After the battle of Armageddon, his tail will shake no more. There is no discharge in this war. 
He who enlists under the banner of the cross must remain faithful until death. He must not lay aside his arms until death is swallowed up in victory. Then will every conqueror bear the image of the heavenly and wear the crown instead of the cross and carry the palm instead of the spear. Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might that we may be able to stand in the evil day and after all the war is over to stand accepted in the beloved that we may reign with him forever and ever. Second, it remains for us to explain, very briefly, the glorious conversation in the text, the questions of the church, and the answers of the Messiah. How great was the wonder and joy of Mary when she met the Master at the tomb, clothed in immortality, where she thought to find him shrouded in death. How unspeakable was the astonishment and rapture of the disciples when their Lord, whom they had so recently buried, came into the house where they were assembled and said, Peace to you. Such are the feelings which the church is represented as expressing in this sublime conversation with the captain of her salvation. He has traveled into the land of tribulation. He has gone down to the dust of death, but lo, he returns as a conqueror. The golden scepter of love in his left hand, the iron rod of justice in his right, and on his head a crown of many stars. The church beholds him with great amazement and delight. She lately followed him weeping to the cross and mourned over his body in the tomb, but now she beholds him risen indeed, having destroyed death, and him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. She goes forth to meet him with songs of rejoicing, as the daughters of Israel went out to welcome David when he returned from the valley, with the head of the giant in his hand and the blood running down on his clothing. The choir of the church is divided into two bands, which chant to each other in alternate strains. The right-hand division begins the glorious question, Who is this that comes from Edom? And the left takes up the question and repeats it with a change, With dyed garments from Basra. Who is this in glorious clothing? resumes the right-hand company. Glorious despite the tribulations he has endured. Traveling in the greatness of his strength, responds the left, strength sufficient to open the gates of the grave and liberate the captives of rot. The celestial conqueror pauses and casts upon the company of daughters of Zion a look of infinite kindness. And with a voice of angel melody and more than angel majesty, he replies, I, who speaks in righteousness and is mighty to save, now bursts the song again like the sound of many waters from the right, why are you red in your apparel? And the response rolls back in melodized thunder from the left, and your garments like him that treads in the winepress. The divine hero answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Even Peter has left me with all his courage and affection, and as for John, to talk of love is all that he can do. I have triumphed over principalities and powers. I am wounded, but they are vanquished. Behold the blood which I have lost. 
Behold the spoils which I have won. Now I will mount my white horse and pursue after Satan and demolish his kingdom and send him back to the land of darkness in everlasting chains. And all his allies will be exiles with him forever. My own arm, which has gained the victory on Calvary and brought salvation to all my people from the tomb, is still strong enough to wield the golden scepter of love and break my foes on the field of Armageddon. I will destroy the works of the devil and demolish all his hosts. I will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. My compassion is stirred for the captives of sin and death. My fury is kindled against the tyrants that oppress them. It is time for me to open the prisons and break off the chains. I must gather my people to myself. I must seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away. I must bind up that which was broken and strengthen that which was weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury and bring down their strength to the earth and stain my clothing with their blood. Let us flee from the wrath to come. Behold, the sun has risen high on the day of vengeance. Let us not be found among the enemies of the Messiah or we will fall as a sacrifice to his righteous indignation on the field of Armageddon. Let us escape for our lives. For the firestorm of his anger will burn to the lowest hell. Let us pray for grace to gain a hold on the salvation of his redeemed. It is a free, full, perfect, glorious, and eternal salvation. Return, you ransomed exiles from happiness. Return to your forfeited inheritance. Now is the year of Jubilee. Come to Jesus, that your debts may be canceled, your sins forgiven, and your persons justified. Come, for the conqueror of your foes is on the throne. Come, for the trumpets of mercy are sounding. Come, for all things are now ready. I don't know where you guys came off in that, but just his description of Jesus going to battle. He looks back. The priests aren't interested. The prophets are like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to save the day. And he's going through it, this huge thing, to the part where death slips into the grave and then calls his friends the worms to attack Jesus. And it feels weird that I'm even saying all these things and it's a part of a sermon that just sounds odd. But that moment when Jesus defeats death, I was so moved by it. I was like, wow, what a great description. And what a, f- I don't want to say fun way, but what just a cool way to look at it. I've never seen it in those terms before. He made Calvary just, again, feel like a battlefield to me. It was a really awesome way to describe it. And I was moved by that. Imagine, by, in a way that poetry can move your heart sometimes in a way that um, 
you know, just facts on the page couldn't. And it's so interesting to me that a guy who got caught almost in this bad theology of we're just going to look at God through facts ends up, you know, becoming a preacher with this really artistic, you know, heartfelt way of preaching. Again, it just, I love to see how these guys are just changed by God. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Ed Bacall. Pastor Ed is a Washington State native. He's taught for 30 plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington, and Nebraska. He currently pastors in Warden, Washington. He has been serving at the Warden Community Church since May of 2010. If you like today's episode, check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. Another special thank you to Ed Beckel. He has done a couple sermons with us before any of our J.C. Ryle episodes. He is a great speaker, and we really appreciate his help. And there are a few great preachers, um, speakers who have done multiple episodes for us. Thank you. If you would like to be a speaker with Revive Thoughts, help bring one of these great preachers to life, hit us up on revivethoughts at gmail.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We'd love to have you and get you started on the process of uh, doing some sermons with us. Also, this is just, I don't really want to go too far into Patreon or things like that today. I just really want to say thank you guys for sharing and talking about us. I We have seen you out there in different groups and messages. People are talking about stuff, and you're saying, hey, check out Revive Thoughts. This is a good show. It's It blows us away. We receive messages and emails from you guys. It blows us away every time it happens that you guys love this stuff like we do. We really get encouraged by it. And um, the thing I'd, thing I'd wrap up on here is we have 54 or 5 stars right now on Apple Podcasts, and that is a very surprising number to Joel and I. That 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 is maybe you don't know if that's high or low, but as people who do a little bit about podcasting, that is a much higher number than a show our size would expect to have, and that's because you guys have been doing that for us. Thank you so much. Please help us to continue to get those ratings and continue to let others know our show has been growing, and we're really grateful to you guys for that. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.